0: Right on. So we're in John chapter 7. And, um, well, let's just read verse 1 right off the hop here. It says this After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So just as we come to chapter 7 here. Um, What what we see is this is that the hostility, what we're going to see is this. The hostility that had developed against Jesus uh, had reached such a point that um, in the minds of the religious leadership of the nation, there was was no longer any question or wondering about what should be done with this Jesus problem. Uh, They had concluded that he had to be destroyed and they were seeking to kill him. And so as we come to this point in John's gospel, we have to know this, that that the pinnacle of Jesus' ministry in Israel is like in the rearview mirror, so to speak. I I mean, really the mountaintop peak of his ministry was the feeding of of the 5,000 and the walking across water. And we saw last week as he gave this very difficult teaching on uh, his body and his blood um, that the crowds had begun to turn away from him. And that the leaders were definitely seeking to kill him. I mean, as far as the enemies of Jesus were concerned, he was living on borrowed time. For them, it was just a matter. As we're going to see, they needed to catch him in an unguarded moment. They had to catch him at the right time, the appropriate time, and um, and then they could they could kill him. But we... But we know this, for for Jesus, for him, his death was the destiny uh, that his father had appointed for him. It was the reason why he had come. And it would be on the father's timetable, not on the timetable of the religious leaders of, of, of Israel. And so the text tells us here, John tells us that Jesus went about in the Galilee. And that's interesting because many had walked away from him. We saw that in last week's text, that they actually backed away. That's what the picture tells us, not that they turned their backs to him, but they were backing up from him. And and uh, they had found his teaching hard, but he remained amongst them. That's what John wants us to know. That Jesus remained amongst those who were backing away from him. Uh, and he was there, and he was present. Should they have a change of heart? They knew where to find him. Uh, he would be available. Should the Holy Spirit be drawing them and... And so John tells us the time of year, it was the the Feast of Booths was at hand. The Feast of Booths uh, is also called the Feast of Tabernacle. It takes place in the fall, in autumn. And it's sort of like this uh, fall festival, like Thanksgiving. You like Thanksgiving? It's kind of like Thanksgiving, a memorial that, that recalled... Uh, the history of God's people, His leading, the Lord leading the children of Israel out of uh, the land of Egypt uh, on the Exodus, and during this fall festival, what they would do is they w- they would recall those years, the forty years, where their ancestors had wandered in the wilderness and then been led into the Promised Land and the provision of God and the blessing of God. We're going to see this more next week when we get further into chapter seven. The, the manna coming down from heaven, the water from the the rock. And when they were wandering in the wilderness, they were living in tents. And then when they came into the promised land, they settled down, they built houses. They, they had land that was their own. And so they instituted, the Lord instituted this kind of harvest festival, the Feast of Booths, so that um, the children of, Israel would never forget the blessings that God had poured out upon them during their wanderings in the wilderness. And so once a year, everybody would kind of, uh, they'd have a camp out. That's what it was. They'd go back to like living like their ancestors had. They'd build temporary structures. They'd go outside in the yard, build a, you know, kids ever tent in the yard? This is what they were doing. They'd build a, a, a structure and they'd live out in the open like camping and the whole nation would do it. In fact, the whole nation would make their, their way to Jerusalem. Jerusalem would turn into like a, one big family camp. That's what it was. It was like family camp. I like that because I like family camp. Yeah, so think of like Thanksgiving family camp if you think of the Feast of Booths. That's what's going on. So it's the fall. And being the fall, Jesus has, just to give you a time frame here to get a sense, he's got six months to live. He's 33 years old. Uh, six, this is six months prior to him giving his life on the cross. There's already, the plot to assassinate him is already afoot. It's already moving forward. There's lots of people involved in it. Jesus knew about it. And so John tells us he was deliberately staying in the north. He was deliberately staying in the Galilee to, to avoid being killed until uh, the father's timetable was, was set. And so when we think about that, when we think about Jesus deliberately staying away from Jerusalem, not—it's not, it's not, there's nothing cowardly about what was going on with Jesus, what he was doing. He wasn't running scared. I just want to remove that picture from your mind. Hanging out in the Galilee, Jesus was not running scared. He just wasn't working by man's timetable. He was working by the Father's timetable. His hour had not yet come. And we know this, The Feast of Booths was the wrong time of year. What what time of year did it need to be? Passover. Needed to be Passover, not the Feast of Booths. He was the Lamb of God. I I don't want to talk sacrilege, but I kept thinking this when I was studying. It's like he wasn't the turkey of God, Thanksgiving. (laughs) He was the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God who gives his life for the sins of the world. And so Passover is six months away. And so it's got to be the Father's timetable. And so it's important that when we read the story, you know, I just think this about the crucifixion of Jesus, his arrest, his, all the suffering that he went through, uh, the cross. You know, it's very important that we do not conclude when we read the story of the crucifixion that Jesus was a victim. Jesus was not a victim of anything that man did to him. I want, I want to just say that. Jesus was not a victim. Je- Jesus was the master over everything that happened to him. It's like, I'll stay in Galilee because I'm working by my father's timetable. Nobody else sets the timetable for me. And his life was not taken, it was given. And those are two diff- very different things when you talk about a life taken versus a life given. And Jesus gave his life. He, he died in the place that he decided He died at the time that he decided. He died in the way that he decided. And it was all in accordance with the plan of the Father, the Father's timetable, and there's six months to go. And so it's interesting is we're just like in John chapter 7, not that far really into this gospel that's got 21 chapters. We're into the last six months of Jesus' life already, as John tells it. And this is Kind of an interesting passage of scripture in John's gospel because it kind of, I don't know, it transitions us into this this last six months of Jesus' life and ministry before the cross and it kind of, I would say this, it shares with us a lot of, we see a lot of opinions that were floating around uh, and ideas that people were forming with regards to who Jesus was, the, the obstacles that they had with regards to him, the attitudes that they had, Uh, the things that were obstacles for them in terms of coming to faith in Jesus. And the first people we read about actually that we're introduced to who it says did not believe in him was his brothers. Check it out, verse two again. (coughs) Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may also see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. I don't know, sometimes when you read the Gospels, it's kind of hard to imagine that Jesus had siblings. Do you ever go, wow, that's kind of weird. Could you imagine Jesus being your big brother, growing <laughs> up in a household with Jesus, um, Sounds like a pretty awesome big brother, but then on another level, you're kind of like, well, maybe I just, I don't know. You're weighing yourself against him, and he's like the perfect person. And we know this, that after Jesus, Mary went on to have other children, of course. And of course, they were they were half siblings. They had a different father than Jesus had. Joseph was their father. God was his father. And it's interesting just to think about it, because sibling relationships are, are fascinating relationships. Like I, th- I just love my siblings. I'm like, I'm really thankful. I get along with my siblings really well. Like we're, we're pretty tight. In fact, I'm jealous because my mom was texting me last night because she's in Ontario and my siblings are together and I'm the, I'm the one on the outside. But they're all coming here in July. So I thought, well, I'm not going out there. But sibling relationships can be amongst the tightest family relationships that there are. Like, really, like, I, I, I look at my boys, and though my boys are very, very different, I would say they're best friends because they just spend so much time with each other. They, they know one another uh, so well. They, they, they know, yeah, all the ins and outs and all the truths and realities of who each other are. That's what happens when you spend so much time together. And so it's interesting when you hear someone's opinion of their siblings. Because they're speaking with insight. They're speaking with some understanding. And so we get, some, we get a picture here of what Jesus' brothers, his half-brothers, thought of him. And they said this to him. I, this is how I read it. It's like, now's your big chance, Jesus. You know, when, when, I, read, when I read these words, I, I don't get the sense that they were cheering him on so much as they were egging him on. Now's your chance. Go make a name for yourself. Like they were chirping him. I get, I get the sense... You know, that they felt that maybe Jesus had forgotten where he had come from. You know, you're a carpenter's son from Nazareth. Do a few miracles, get some followers. Some people like to hear your teaching. Well, if you want to be famous, then go be famous. Go to Jerusalem, show them what you got. Like, they're, they're lipping him off. Like, honestly, because, you know, John tells us they didn't believe in him. And these boys knew Jesus better than anyone. They, they had, now here's the thing about this. They had more than enough information, which is interesting because we do this with regards to Jesus. We want to accumulate information and knowledge about Jesus and then we say, then I'll make a decision about him. But I would say in all the people on the face of the earth that had knowledge about Jesus and had accumulated knowledge about Jesus, who better could speak of him than his own brothers? And it's interesting that knowledge had not led to a decision of faith for them. We're going to see that throughout this text that that's a problem. That knowledge is not the solution for your faith and so hold on hold on to that thought you know cuz it's interesting just to think about it you know that you can know jesus so well and then yet not believe in him you can be brought up in a christian home you could you can spend your life sitting in a church you could spend your life serving in a church you could you know be involved in all sorts of religious things and then yet not believe in Jesus. You're only accumulating knowledge with regards to him. All the time being told about Jesus, all the time learning about Jesus and then never really believing in him. Never trusting him as your Lord and Savior. And that was, that was his brothers. And so look at verse six. Jesus said to them, Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that it works, that it, about it, that it, its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. And so Jesus says to his little brothers, uh, you can go to Jerusalem anytime you want uh, because Really, he's saying to them, you can fit in. You have nothing to fear. You you fit in with that crowd. Got nothing to fear, so go ahead. But because they hate me, I have to be wise about how I go to Jerusalem. I have to be wise about when I go to Jerusalem. You go ahead and go to the feast, but I can't go. And again, you know, if you think about it, if Jesus had gone at the beginning of the feast, he would have been crucified six months too early. He had to wait until the next big feast. In six months, it would be Passover. And it's interesting because you think about Passover. Jesus was on the cross before Passover began. There on on the very day. And so he knew that he could not go at this time to Jerusalem and be safe. So he told them, you go. You can go anytime. You can go anywhere. Uh, You may be, and and basically I read it like this. Jesus is saying, "You, you know, you might be familiar with me. But the truth is you can go to Jerusalem because you don't have any trouble with this world. You don't have any trouble with the message that this world teaches and preaches because you don't believe in me. That's really what he's saying. You don't have a problem if you go to Jerusalem because you don't believe in me. If you believed in me, there'd be a problem for you too when you got to Jerusalem. Because, you know, believing in Jesus will lead you into some sort of conflict with this world and with its value system. Jesus says this. He he says, they hate me because I testify that their works are evil. They, They hated him because he told them, you're not perfect. You're missing the mark with regards to what God is asking of you. You know, it's interesting to think about this because... You know the world loves saints. the world love loves Christians who mind their own business. Believe whatever you want, just mind your own business that's That's the message of the world, right? It's like just just don't tell me that I fall short. Don't tell me such things and and that's the truth. The world doesn't mind a good man. The world doesn't mind a, a good woman as long as they keep quiet <laughs> kind of interesting to think about that. But but the moment you point out evil, you have a problem. The world comes into conflict with you. Just be quiet. Don't point out evil. And Jesus was always doing this. He was pointing out evil and in particular he was pointing out hypocrisy amongst the religious leaders of Jerusalem. Pointing out where they were falling short. Pointing out the hypocrisy and they hated him for it. And as I read this, and, and you think of the, about that background, I just think this, that, that the real tragedy in this whole part of this text so far is, is Jesus' brothers. Because they didn't, they didn't believe in him. They were too familiar. I think that that was actually their problem. They were so familiar with Jesus. They were so buddy-buddy with Jesus. They were having a hard time recognizing who he was. And so they served to us as an example of of people who know all about Jesus and yet don't know him. They'd never placed their faith in him. And, and that's what it comes down to. It's like this question, have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Do you believe in him? Not just know about him. And we know this about his brothers. Eventually they did. That's the amazing thing. After, after the cross, after the resurrection, uh, the, two of these men, Jude and James, became pillars in the church. James became the leader of the church of Jerusalem. He wrote the epistle of James. Jude wrote his little letter. That's who these men became. But at this point in time, they had not gotten there yet. And so verse 10 tells us, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Imagine that, in disguise, cognito. Uh, he was waiting for the right time, and then he made his way to the feast. And then verse 11 tells us, The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. Well, well, some said, He's a good man. Others said, No, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. And so it's interesting. Just think of Jerusalem. There's there's like a million people there for the celebration, family count. This is a big family count. And. There's lots going on, lots of worship, uh, lots of time spent at the temple, lots of eating, lots of celebrations, lots of family time. And what we read here is that pe- Jesus was on the lips of people. They were talking about him. They were expecting him, and he, the fact that he was absent from the city was noticed. People were like, Where is he? I thought he was gonna, I thought he was gonna be here. And I think it's awesome that. People were talking about him because it's good when people talk about Jesus. That's a good thing. But no one was talking about him publicly. It was just in private conversations because it was dangerous to be talking about him publicly. So they were just talking about him in their conversations. Who do you think he is? I don't know man. He does stuff I've never heard of or seen that nobody's seen before. Yeah, do you think he's the Messiah? Do you think he's the Christ? Do you think he's coming to the feast? I was hoping to get to hear him teach. I was hoping to see him do, you know, this or that or some miracle. But no one was prepared to come out and vocalize their faith in Jesus. It was just all in private conversations. And they were debating whether he was good or bad and they were sitting on the fence. Nobody was saying, I'm for Jesus. I'm, I'm in his camp. I believe in him. I put my faith in him. Just sitting on the fence. That's what this crowd was doing. And we know this, that there comes a point when you're discussing Jesus and you're debating Jesus, about Jesus, and you're talking about him, that, that there comes a point and time and a place where a decision has to be made. With Jesus or against him? For him or against him? You have, you have to make a decision about your life. And these people, it seems to me as I read it, that they, that they feared what would happen to them. They were, they were fearing the response of the religious leaders and the crowd, and so they were, they were sitting on the fence. And that's one of the reasons people still sit on the fence with regards to Jesus it's a, it's a tactic of self preservation. It's like, well, I don't know what people are going to think about me if I make a decision for Jesus. Or I don't, I don't know what people, others will say about me if I make a decision for Jesus. Or I don't know what will happen to me if I make a decision for Jesus. So it's just safer to sit on the fence and not make a decision. But Not making a decision is a decision. And it's interesting because really that fence sitting has more to do with yourself than it has to do with Jesus. It's more about you than it is about Jesus. And so we read in verse 14, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching. So this is a week-long feast. And uh, we're going to see next week, uh, just a text that I love towards at at the height, the height of the feast, what Jesus is going to do. But this is the middle of the feast. And Jesus shows up there, he's in the temple, and he begins to just publicly teach in the temple. That wasn't uncommon. Rabbis had the, the freedom and the ability to do that. They grab a corner, some spot in the temple, and just begin to teach, and a crowd would gather. And so Jesus begins to do that. And verse 15 says, The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Which is interesting, like this is an interesting comment, they didn't, because they don't they don't like talk about what Jesus is teaching. Like when you read that, don't you think? Well, I wonder what he was teaching. What was he teaching about? Was he teaching about the feast of booths? Was he giving the Sermon on the Mount again? Was he sharing the teaching that we saw in John chapter six again? Was he repeating something he had taught before? Was he teaching something new? But But John doesn't tell us that wasn't what was dominating the conversation. The subject was not what Jesus taught. The subject was where did he get his learning? Where did this man get schooled? Where did he study and where did he get such learning? Which to me is tragic when you think about it. He's talking about God. He's, I imagine, talking about the kingdom of God. He's talking about salvation, and and faith, and and grace, and they're more concerned about his theological qualifications. Does that preacher have a doctorate? I don't know. What seminary did he go to? Did he do a bachelor's degree? I've never heard of this guy. What rabbi did he train under? Who mentored him? Who taught him? You know, they actually say that in Jerusalem at this time, there was at least 30 seminaries. And so they're like doing the math. Well, did he go to Regent? I don't know. Did he go over here? I don't I don't know where did this guy get his schooling? You know, it's interesting that the Pharisees in the book of Acts, the book of the, the book of Acts tells us that the Pharisees noticed the same thing about Peter and John. That when they were preaching and when they were told to stop and the Pharisees confronted them and and, and John and Peter were articulate and anointed by the Holy Spirit to defend the message of the gospel that the Pharisees noted that these were unschooled, ordinary men. And what did they take notice of? They took notice that these men had been with Jesus. That they'd been with Jesus. And you know that's the key? Because it's, it's not what you know that matters, it's who you know. In the kingdom of God, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And if you've been hanging with Jesus, you can be unlearned and unschooled and people will marvel and they'll sense there's something different about this person. There's something different about the way that they live and the way that they speak. And it's not about what you know, it's about who you've been with. And so Jesus told them, I'm passing on to you what God told me because he had been with the Father. Wasn't where he had schooled, it's who he had been with, the Father. That's where I got it, Jesus says. Look at verse 16. So Jesus answered them My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. So Jesus begins to speak about. His credentials here, if you want to know the letters like behind his name, <laughs> where did his credentials come from? He said this, if you want to test the credibility of what I say, if you want to test and know the authenticity of what I say, then there's a simple way to discover if I speak the truth or not. Here's how you discover if I speak the truth or not. It's simple. If you are willing to do what God wants, then you will find out that I'm telling the truth. See, the barrier for those who hear Jesus is this. This is the barrier. Unless I'm willing to do what he says, I'll never know if he speaks the truth or not. I, I, I have no proof that Jesus' word is true. Like really, who am I or who are you to be able to judge whether Jesus' word is true? I don't have... I don't have proof to judge whether his word is true or not. And so the factor that helps me discover his word is true is if I'm obedient and I do what it says. And you've discovered this. Peter talked about this last week when Jesus said, do you want to leave me too? Peter said, no, we believe and we know you're the Holy One of God. Peter said, I believe first. And then, when I participated by faith in you, Jesus, I came to know you were—you really were—are who you claim to be. And there's no way to test the credentials and the credibility of Jesus unless I do what he says. And we're going to see why that isn't in a, in a moment here. I, I would say this: that this is the, the reason why many people don't understand the truth of whether Christianity or is right or wrong or true or false. This is where people get hung up. They're hung up here. That they're unwilling to do what God wants. They're unwilling to do what Jesus says. Come to me. We saw this last week. He, he said, come come to me and, I'll, and you'll discover I, I'm the bread of life. And people's barrier is this. They're unwilling to do what God wants. They're unwilling to be obedient to the words of Jesus. And Jesus is saying this, that the pathway to spiritual knowledge is not education. The pathway to spiritual knowledge is obedience. Do what I say. And this means that spiritual knowledge is a matter more of your will than it is your mind. It's a matter of your heart more than it is your mind. And Jesus says, if, if you're willing to do, he tells this crowd, if you're willing to do what God wants you to do, then you will know where, where I got my teaching and you will know where I got my knowledge and you will know whether it's right or whether it's not. And in fact, Jesus goes on to say, the the reason you're not able to understand what I am teaching is that you have already failed to obey that which God has already given you. And he points directly at their failure. Uh, I'll point it out now before we read it so that you can spot it. They, they They had failed to obey what they already knew and specifically Jesus points to the Ten Commandments. He says, if you obeyed the Ten Commandments, you'd know my word is true. So check it out, verse 18. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? We know this. We know the plot was, man, it was raging. Jesus was like having to stay away from Jerusalem to this point. They wanted to murder him. And he says to the crowd, he says, Moses gave you the Ten Commandments. So we know it's not Moses. It came from the Father. But he says, you don't keep those. How do you expect to know what I am saying is true or not if you don't obey the word of God? verse 19 has not moses given you the law yet none of you keeps the law why are you seeking to kill me jesus is showing jesus is showing them this that they were not morally capable of judging his teaching this is important i want like if you if you're a note taker i want you to catch this this is like this strikes me because I didn't know this about myself. I am not morally morally capable of judging whether Jesus' word is true or not. No man, no woman on the face of this earth is morally capable of judging whether Jesus' word is true or not. Why? Well, this this is a major human barrier that keeps people from coming to Christ. And Jesus says, here's the why, that those who are not willing to do what God wants will never understand who Jesus is. That he's God in the flesh, that he's the savior of the world. And, And the truth is, is that on a moral basis, human beings cannot judge Jesus. The only way that you can judge Jesus and know whether he's true or not is by doing what he says. And if you do what he says, you'll discover this. It's true. He's true. He is the way, the truth, and the life. That's why Peter could say this. We've believed and we've come to know. We've we've arrived at knowledge because we've put our faith in you, Jesus. And Jesus points out to this crowd, well, they're plotting to kill me. How could you possibly understand who I am when you have murder in your hearts, when you have anger in your hearts, when you're not willing to follow what God has already called you to do? Here's what he called you to do. Simple. Thou shalt not murder. And Your heart is full of anger and you want to kill me. You're not already receiving the word of God. Why should you expect to believe what I say? Why do you seek to kill me, he asks. Now it's interesting, look at the words of the crowd. They said, you have a demon. What an accusation against the Son of God. You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Read that and you just get the sense that not all of the crowd knew that the leaders were plotting to murder Jesus. And so in verse 21, we read this. Jesus answered them, I did one work and you marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from your fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So Jesus shows them their hypocrisy. Um, We've seen this in John's gospel and John's gospel as he's proving that Jesus is the son of God. It's the reason why he's written his gospel. Uh, we, we saw it f- since John chapter 5 that the major point of conflict was the fact that Jesus had healed this man on the Sabbath. Told him, rise, pick up your mat and go. After 38 years of being crippled and because it had all happened on the Sabbath, they they persecuted him for what he said, but then or for what he did, but then they wanted to kill him for what he said and it was all rooted in the healing of this man on the Sabbath. They're plotting to kill him. And Jesus points out the inconsistency of their, their logic and and their thought because they were willing to allow the act of circumcision happen on the Sabbath to be performed on the Sabbath. This act that 8 days after birth a Jewish male was taken and there was a cutting away of the flesh. The flesh was removed and it, and it represented Israel's covenant relationship with God and Jesus points out, you're upset with me for healing someone. I did something good and you like caused pain on the Sabbath. You cause pain. You take a knife And you perform a surgical procedure that causes pain. And you are doing so because you want to be obedient to the the law of Moses. And you know I'm sure there's like a cry out in the middle of that act. And you cause pain and then I do this. I raise a man up who 38 years has been a cripple. He's like worshiping the Lord going to the house of God the first thing that he does. Goes to praise God and I restore his health and you're upset with me. Which I just think is typical of religion, don't you think? Like I appreciate the music this morning, Ron, because you know what religion does? Religion says, don't be happy. Don't be happy. Religion says, you're spiritual, you should be miserable. You take a whip and lash yourself, you piece of trash. Like that's religion. We've been, but we've been set free from that. Amen. Amen. Like Jesus has set us free. There was joy when Jesus healed that man. He says, you're like hustling me over this. And, And religion says, you know, if, if you're having a good time on Sunday, how dare you? You should be ashamed. And, and that's the way of religion and the law. It's painful. It's heavy. It's miserable. And Jesus asked, Does it make sense? Does it make sense that you would circumcise on the Sabbath and it's okay, but that I would heal on the Sabbath and it's not okay? And he says, I love verse 24. This is a really important verse. Do not judge by appearances, by, but judge with right judgment. What does the world tell us about judgment? It says, do not judge. I want to tell you that that's not biblical. That is not biblical. Do you know you're making judgments all the time? The scripture tells you to make judgments. But what the scripture tells us to do is to make right judgments, to make the correct judgments. And Jesus says this, he says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgments. And I would tell you this, that that a person who is prepared to judge others more harshly than they judge themselves is one who is judging by appearance and not by reality. That's the kind of person who can't go any further with Jesus. Jesus says you have to make right judgments. You don't judge by appearances. And the place where you need to start is this. (laughs) Do with your own heart. That's why I said don't Don't pull the speck out of your brother's eye when there's a plank in your own. Make right judgment. Start with yourself and you judge yourself on the same basis you judge everybody else. And the crowd heard all this and they they continued the debate. So look at verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Oh, so now it comes out. Verse 26. And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities know that he really is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So they set up another obstacle in their minds as they're like, they're they're seeing what's going on. Isn't there a plot to kill this guy? Yeah, I think so. Why aren't they doing it? Why aren't they arresting him? He's here. We know why they're not arresting him because his time had not yet come. But here he is, he's, he's speaking, and so the crowd's going, well, is he the Messiah? Is he the Christ? Have, have the leaders concluded that he is who he claims to be because he's talking openly and nobody's shutting him down? Does that mean the rulers have ex- accepted him? No, he can't be. He can't be the Messiah because they come to this conclusion, another problem. They say, well, we know where he comes from. We know where he, where he lived. This is Jesus of Nazareth. The Messiah is a mysterious figure. We, we don't know where he comes from. This can't be the Messiah. So verse 28. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple. You know me. And you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. And him you do not know. I know him for I came from him. And he sent me. So Jesus answers the question again that they're debating about with this question. He asks this, "Do you really know me?" You th- you say that you know where I come from. Do you really know me? Well, yeah, we know your mother and we know your father and we know that you're from you're from Nazareth. And Jesus is asking are, are you as acquainted with me as you think that you are? You, you talk as if you know all about me, but you don't even know the one who sent me. And he's saying this, if, if you don't know me, then you don't know God. Because God's the one who sent me. And again, it's, it's, it's this hurdle. As I read this, it's this hurdle. That you can think you know all about Jesus all this information, all this knowledge, and not really know him. Like we talk about, like, the descent has to happen at 18 inches from this very feeble thing between my ears <laughs> down to the throne of my life. Do we, do we believe in him? And to know Jesus is to be a Christ follower. To know Jesus is to be a Christian. And and Jesus said to these people, you're debating about whether I am the Messiah and you think you know about where I came from, but the truth is, everything about me is actually a mystery to you. You don't know me, therefore you don't know God, but I know him and I come from him because he sent me. I'm just challenged. When I read this, I think, man, how well do I know Jesus? How well do I know Jesus? How well do you know Jesus? You know, Jesus said this, if if you don't know him, that the day will come when he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. And Jesus said that when he says that to people, they will begin to respond back to him and they'll begin to speak of all the things that they did in his name. Say, yeah, but Jesus, we we did all this in your name. We, We went to church in your name. We helped at church in your name. We supported the church in your name. We did good deeds in your name. Maybe we worked miracles in your name. We drove out demons in your name. And he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. You were so busy doing things in my name that we never got to know each other. And it's true. It's true for us, church, that that we can be so busy doing the work of Jesus, so busy doing the work of Christ that we don't take time to just get to know him, to believe his word, to spend time with him in prayer and spend time in his word. I mean, how do you get to know a person? How do you get to know someone? Is it by doing things for them? No, it's by spending time with them. By being in their presence. By talking to them. By listening to them. And you never get to know anybody except this way. And it's interesting that these crowds thought they knew Jesus. Well, we know where he comes from, so we know him, right? No. No. No, Jesus said, you don't even, you don't even know me. You don't know me, and so you don't know the one who sent me. It's a, it's a really interesting text to me as I read this that just challenges me to say, man, I can't be accumulating knowledge about Jesus. I need to be following him with my heart. Saying, Jesus, I put my faith in you. I trust you. I believe in you, Jesus. I, I believe your words. Help me in my unbelief. Help me, Lord, bring knowledge to my belief. And it's interesting as you you read this because unable to argue with Jesus, the Jewish leaders resorted to this. They resorted to violence. Check out verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. It's interesting that John talks about the time, the time had not yet come, the time had yet, and now the language has changed to the hour, it's specifically speaking of the cross. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, why? Because they couldn't. His hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Will he do more than this man You know, I I could just ask you that question. Maybe you're sitting on the fence this morning and you you don't know Jesus. Accumulating knowledge, just picking up facts, wondering about who he is. Let me just ask you this question that the crowd asks. When Christ appears, will he do more than this man? And and that's where we, we have to look at who Jesus is, look at what he said and say, Jesus, okay, I believe I believe. I I put my faith in you. I trust you, Jesus, that you are who you said you are. That you are God in the flesh. That you are the Son of God. That you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus, come and take away my sin. (laughs) Come and forgive me, Jesus. Let's get to know each other, Jesus. I want to know you. And that's the challenge of this text. And we see that human beings have these arguments that they set up the heart and the human mind that resists resists him, accumulating knowledge, not moving to the place of faith, thinking that we have the authority and the right to make moral judgments about Jesus when we don't. And all along the call is this, just put your faith in me. Follow me. Surrender your life to me. And that's the call. We're going to see, Jesus is going to go on. We're going to pick it up next week in verse 32. So let's bow our heads.